I'd like to read a few verses and then tell my story. It comes from Matthew 16. This is what I'm reading this year, the voice version. I try to read a different version every year when I got to the Amplified. It took me 11 years to read that. This is the voice version, Matthew 16 and uh, verse 13. Jesus said, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus said, and you, you, who do you say that I am? Peter, you are the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. Jesus said, Simon, son of Barjona, your knowledge is the mark of blessing. You didn't learn this truth from your friends or from teachers or from the sages you've met on the way. You learned it from the Father in heaven. This is why I've called you Peter, a rock, for on this rock I'll build my church. The church will reign triumphant even at the gates of hell. Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I want to tell you my story. If we could put that first slide up, my story. Uh, this is a picture of your evangelist. If you can put the next picture up, you're thinking, how long is this story going to last? Uh, well, it, not that long. It's not going to last long. This is the only baby picture I have of myself. I was born in this state of Indiana, Winchester, Indiana, up on the eastern part. My mother did not want me. My mother had two severe mental illnesses, and she was borderline on a third. My mother, biological mother, Glenola Sue Mills, was on her way to get an illegal abortion when her sister, Zelfia Madonna Phillips, those are some Indiana names right there, some cornfield names. She talked my mother out of it, and she said, let this kid be born. You never know what he might become. The next picture, let's just show that next picture if you would. Uh, this is my grandfather. Uh, was there a picture before that of me standing with a couple of old people? We kind of changed it out this week. What was the picture? Just Yeah, let me see that picture. You see, your evangelist has not developed a receding hairline. I was born with a receding hairline. Right there is the proof. See it? Right now I look like I've escaped from a rescue mission because I'm in two productions playing Ebenezer Scrooge and I get sick of my wig falling off, so I'm growing my own wig and beard. That's my mother right there. My mother, she did not want me. She told me later in life as a young adult, she said, I felt like if I had you that I would, uh, I would uh, never be able to get a man. And she never was able to get a man. Ironically, when I was 30, I was speaking at a large church in Clearwater, Florida, a private investigator came up to me and said, if you ever want to find your biological father, let me know. A year later, I called him. Within 15 minutes, I was talking to my biological father. Before I could meet him, he dropped dead July 5th, 1996. My, my biological father, when he found out that he had impregnated this woman, he left. He went away uh, to Montana until, quote, unquote, the dust settled. My grandmother, who's got a pocketbook in her hand, she looks like she's about to clock me with it. She didn't, she didn't want me. I found out as an, a, a 40-year-old that she would tell my biological mother, she'd say, hey, I don't want to raise your kid. I raised my 11 kids. I don't want to raise your kid. Can you imagine being raised in that environment? I live with them. Now the guy in the middle, Clessy, Clessy Rollin Mills, I'm named after him. My name is Rollin Joe Phillips, but my comedian partner, if you come to the show tonight, you'll see him. In Bible college, he was the announcer, and he announced one day when I made a, uh, a shot from the corner. He said, from the parking lot, Rollin' Joe Phillips. I said, that's cooler than Rollin', hallelujah. From this day forward, my name shall be Rollin' Joe Phillips. They said, Clessy, you'll never be alive long enough 
to see this kid graduate from high school. Next picture. You see the next picture, a uh, guy, uh, the guy there on the left, he's sad because he's giving me away. He's really mad and upset. On the right, I hadn't seen an old man in 10 years. He drove from Indiana all the way to Columbus, Georgia, and the screen door flew open to our little mill house, and that old man walked in, and he screamed, I'm alive, which I thought was pretty cool that he had survived long enough. Well, they gave me away. Next picture. This is the couple. This is the family that they gave me away to. Thank you, Don, for showing that. That's my first cousin by blood. He was 23 years old. That was his uh, young wife. She was 20. I was three years old. So with the judge's signature in 1967, my cousin became my dad. Uh, my mom became my aunt. My aunt became my grandmother. And my grandparents became my great-grandparents. That's why I flunked most of my math classes. <laughs> my family tree looks like a shrub. <laughs> but life was pretty good. Life was pretty good. This next picture is on or around the day that they actually gave me away. So from that day forward, life was really good. Next picture, you see a red wagon. Uh, I had a red wagon. And uh, when I was six years old, I remember that Indiana birthday very, very well. Went fishing up there and... Covered bridges, uh, had a pinball machine in fifth grade. My dad was an Air Force mechanic, got to see some cool stuff, got adopted in Indiana, moved to West Texas. Next picture, you see baseball, uh, Tinker Toys, and, and uh, life was really good. See, I, I was adopted. My mama, who adopted me, she would tell me stories. She said, when, when we adopted you, Joey, we couldn't bathe you for about uh, weeks. Every time we got close to the water, you screamed like we were waterboarding you or something. And I know it was because, see, my biological mom told me with her own mouth that she would torture me and abuse me. She'd, she'd tell a two-year-old, if you don't shut your mouth, I'm going to put you in the attic. And before she died, she told me that she, she'd take me up and put me in the attic. And then she said, if you cry, the monsters are going to get you. And every two-year-old cries, and she'd come halfway up those steps and make scary sounds like a monster. And in my heart, I know that the reason I was terrified of water was because my mom would put me under, not knowing for sure whether she was going to bring me up or not. That's how I was raised. But then I understood adoption. See, when my mom adopted me, she would tell me, come here, Joey. We'd be in a Kmart somewhere. She'd say, look at all these parents and all them little kids. They all had to take those kids home from the hospital. We went out and chose you. So I understand that I've been adopted twice. I've been adopted naturally and I've been adopted spiritually. I get how big a deal it is to be adopted. From the age of three to the age of 15, life was really good. You know, my dad was an insurance agent in Indiana, then Missouri. He'd leave on Monday. He'd come home on Friday, driving that green El Camino. El Camino. Life was good, really good, till it wasn't. The next picture shows my dad. Uh, my dad, we were living in, in North Alabama at the time. And he told me on a Tuesday, he said, let's go down to Hartzell. I need to buy some shoes or look at some shoes. At that point, he was running a restaurant. And, uh, and I'm going to say some things about my parents. And there's no virtue and throwing your parents under the bus, just the opposite. The Bible says, honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise that life might go well with you and that you might enjoy it on the earth. 
And so it, it, there's no benefit to me of saying bad things about my mom or my dad. I'm telling you a story. My dad, my dad had gotten beaten in Tampa, Florida on a business trip, severely left for dead in an alley. I never had my dad back after that. He had a thousand fire ant bites. We didn't even know what that was being from the Midwest up here. We didn't know what fire ants were. They liked to have killed him. It, my dad's facial features changed, but his personality changed. I never had my dad back. So after that experience, we're in a car going to North Alabama, and he says, Joe, I don't love your mom anymore, and I'm going to get a divorce, but if you can't take it, I'm going to wait till the day after you graduate, and then I'm going. And it shocked me because they never argued. And my mom was awesome. They ne- my dad was awesome. They never argued. I said, what? He says, if you can't take it, I'll wait. But if you can take it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get divorced. What do you want me to do? And I'm 15. I didn't know the Lord. I didn't know the Lord. And I, I said, Dad, uh, I had wisdom from God. I guess it was from God. I said, Dad, I, you're a grown man. You, you're 35 years old. I can't make your decision for you. But you and mom are my whole life. I don't want you to do that. But, I mean, you just do, what you, what do you, whatever you want to do, whatever you feel like you got to do. One week later, my mom was gone. And one week after that, this family moved in. As a woman moved into a 900-square-foot duplex in Decatur, Alabama with two daughters from two different daddies. She, I guess she apparently she worked for my dad in a restaurant. And when uh, she moved in, hate moved into my heart. I hated everyone and everything. In fact, I'm not proud of this, but the oldest girl, the biggest girl there, uh, when she stole some money out of my wallet one time, I smacked her in the mouth. I think I think I made her little, little nose bleed. Didn't even care. I was callous in my heart. My whole life was kind of falling apart. It was uh, there's a lot more to it than I'm going to tell, but it was tough. And I didn't live for anything. I didn't live for anyone except basketball. I lived for basketball. I went to four high schools in four states in four years. We bounced around like crazy. Lots of people took me in during that time because I was so bitter and full of hate. The Grendels, the Griggs, the Ammons, the Woods, the McCatherines, and, and the Heidel, some other people. I, I just uh, was angry. So I just lived for basketball. That's all I lived for. In fact, see if you can pick me out of my senior picture. Take your time. I've gained some weight. Let me know when you got it. <laughs> I played against Dominique Wilkins' brother. We played against uh, University of Tennessee Chattanooga when I was in uh, Columbus State University we, before I transferred to a Bible school. I played for, against a lot of great players. That kid on the bottom left there, far number 10, Tony Taylor, is probably the best I ever played with or against. This was an inner-city school in Georgia. In fact, I moved from Decatur, Alabama. I decided I'll give my dad another try, and I moved to Columbus, Georgia. Drove in November of 1980 into town and uh, didn't know uh, how to get anywhere. Didn't have Siri. Imagine that. Hey, Siri, route me to, well, <laughs> wasn't none of that. I had to ask somebody at a gas station, how do I get to such and such? Rolled a car my, that I borrowed into the driveway, threw the keys on the table, said hello to my dad, and I walked to the school. I walked into the school. They were having practice. I just found the school on my own, found the gym on my own. The coach saw a strange kid walk in, blew the whistle, said, son, can I help you? I said, sir, I just literally moved here from Decatur, Alabama. I'd like to try out for the basketball team. He said, son, we've already picked our team. 
we've already had a game. I said, well, that's just how my life's going. Thanks anyway. And I'm walking out. He said, hey, wait a minute. Go down there to that practice goal and shoot 10 free throws. Went down there in my street clothes. I guess I had an anointing come on me or something. I hit 10 out of 10. He said, hey, son, I found a jersey for you. <laughs> I reckon they had problems with their free throw department. And uh, so that was a good break on my behalf. But the better break came the next day, 730 in the morning. I went to math class. Show the next picture if you would. Well, that picture right there. That shows you that I've been healed of my anorexia. I mean, I was skinny. We didn't always have food, which was ironic because my dad ran a restaurant. We didn't have food. Sometimes when we did have food, I remember the food flying across the, the dining room and the glass plate smashing against the wall. That was the amount of tension that I had. You know, I, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken is finger licking good. I'd have to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and lick other people's fingers. That's how broke down we were. You know, we couldn't even pay attention. That's how much. I'd go to my neighbor's house across the street. Two reasons. They had food over there. Secondly, the daughter was a head cheerleader. So those two things. I'd hang around until uh, dinner time. Joey, don't you need to go home and eat? No, I'm good. I'll just stay in here and watch Jeopardy. No, really, don't you need to go home and eat? No, I'm good. I'm not even hungry. I'll go ahead. No. We got extra. Please. I'm great. We'll just throw away this pork chop and cantaloupe. You going to throw it away? You going to throw it away? Well, if you're going to throw it away, that's how I ate a lot, of, a lot of my meals. Not all of them, but a lot of them. The next day I walk into this teacher. Show the next picture, Mr. Don, if you would. That's Mr. Luther Reader. He was an odd guy. He had a crew cut. As I remember, his shirt didn't always match his pants, but I think I'm wrong because his wife was so fashionable. But I do remember sometimes his shoes had a party that his pants did not receive the invitation to attend. He'd say crazy things like, like this. He'd, we're on the second floor. He'd say, you open up that window. You open up that window. You walk out that window. You think you're going to fly? You go to Panama City. Your car hit a tree. Tree going to move? Could you let me flunk math by itself instead of Southern philosophy, hybrid math, whatever this is? I didn't know what in the world was going on. I didn't know what in the world was going on. But it was a different day back then. You, the old people in here can tell the young people. We used to have smoking sections in public schools for students. I don't know if the young, how many of y'all remember a smoking section in public school? Come on, Pastor, you're not that old. Y'all, I mean, we'd just be like, hey, what are you doing? I'm going to have a cigarette before algebra. I mean, it was weird. I'll tell you how weird my school was. I went to my senior prom with my high school teacher. She was 29 years old. Who does that? Weirdos and lost people. She was fine. She was in the Miss Georgia fashion, but still, that's weird. It was a different day. So one day, this teacher was sitting on a, sitting on a bench in the breezeway, and I was having a particularly bad day. I was mad. I was a mad young man. I remember sitting down beside him. I said, uh, Mr. Reader, why you sit out here? I checked, before you answer, I've checked with the office. You don't have lunch duty. You don't eat out here. You're not over there in the smoking section, smoking with the teachers in the teacher section. You're not grading papers. You just sit out here and look on us all day long. And frankly, you're starting to kind of creep me out. He let that disrespect slide. And the answer to my question is what put this microphone in my hand today in Indiana. He said, he said, I've been waiting on you. 
When he said it, tears filled my eyes immediately. People looking at this tough inner city basketball player walking by, I'm like, it's allergies. Move along. Just don't mind your business. I said, Mr. Reader, I hate my life. I hate those two people that, that live in my, three people moved into my house. I hate my dad right now. I got no hope. I got two pairs of pants, no vehicle, no way to go to college. I got good grades. That's the only thing I got. I got no hope. And he said, why don't you, uh, why don't you come work for me? I know where you live. Just walk to my house on Saturday. He had a farm. I'm like, wow, life is looking up. So I did. I walked to his house 7 o'clock Saturday morning. He, took, he, he carried me. That's what they say. He said, I'll carry you to my farm. He carried, he carried me to his farm in Opelika, Alabama. He worked me like a Hebrew slave. <laughs> he gave me a turkey bologna sandwich, an RC cola, a faded banana, and a $10 bill. That was $10 more than I had. We'll get back to that story in just a minute. I went through uh, having the dysfunction that I've had. It, it doesn't matter if the Holy Spirit abides in me or not abides in me. There is a place, I believe, for good Christian spirit-filled therapy. I went to a therapist and told her my story as an adult. She said, You're, you've got dissociative something, 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 or other attachment disorder. She said, let me tell you something about it. Let me tell you something about what you've been through in life. People with the disorder that you will have, Never have a normal relationship in adult life. The fact that you have a family and that you have the ministry that you have. She says, you are a miracle. And I believe that, that I am a miracle. A therapist one time asked me, as a lay therapist, and she and her husband went through this thing with me. And she said, I want you to go back to that place when you were in the attic. You were in the attic. She said, where do you think Jesus was when you were in the attic? That was a great question. That was sort of an, a life-giving question to me that I had to visualize in my head where I thought Jesus might be during those abusive, horrible moments. But I got a better question. We just read it. It's not where was Jesus. The better question is this. Who is Jesus? That's the question. Who is Jesus? And a lot of people have perceptions and perspectives that are completely wrong. I've been thinking a lot about the difference between perspective and perception. They sound like they're the same thing. Per perception is what hits your cognitive resources. It's, it's the information that you, your five senses ascertain almost immediately. Perspective is the worldview that you build around it. I'll give you an example. I don't like to look at dead things on the road. I've been thousands and thousands and multiplied thousands of miles, and when I see a dead animal on the side of the road, I make two quick determinations. I ascertain, number one, is it human? It never has been. Thank God. I hope it never is. Number two, is it impeding my progress? It rarely is, and I just keep on rolling. I'm like Job. I make a covenant with my eyes, and I just keep on rolling. Now, my wife's a registered nurse. If she's with me, she'll see a dead thing, and she'll go, Oh, look, I think that's the spleen. Is that the small one? Ah! Can't take it. Makes my stomach, stomach turn. I was traveling. I was behind a semi the other day. I saw a dead thing on the road, made those quick two determinations, keep on rolling. Imagine my absolute horror when the dead thing flew up into my windshield. Wasn't even Halloween. Well, because it wasn't a dead thing. It was a piece of cardboard perfectly shaped like a dead thing with grease spots that looked like blood. <laughs> but if you put me on a lie detector and said, 
uh, Reverend Phillips, did you see a dead thing on the side of the road? I could have said yes, and I would have passed in flying colors, but it wasn't the truth. Because perception nor perspective really is what matters. The only thing that matters is perfection. That's why Jesus said you're going to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In the Bible, there are a lot of perceptions of Jesus. The, the boys are in a boat. They're trying to cross a stormy sea, and there's someone walking on the water. They're like, ah! They said, it's a ghost. They thought Jesus was a ghost. That was their perception. And they built their little worldview for a few moments around that perception. But that wasn't the truth. What kind of is, he's the Holy Ghost, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but he's more than just what they thought he was. It wasn't a ghost. But in their mind, in that moment, that's what he was. And there's a whole segment of society that thinks Jesus is just some mystical thing. You know, just, yeah, we believe in the good Lord. Yeah, we saw, uh, we saw Jesus, shape, you know, the shape of Jesus on a grilled cheese sandwich. There's something, ooh, you know, that kind of mystical philosophy of life. But he's more than a ghost. John chapter 20, Mary is at the tomb. There's someone there. She says, if you have taken him, show us where you have laid him. She thought he was the gardener. And he is sort of a gardener. John chapter 15, he prunes us, he shapes us, right? But he's more than just a gardener and for a whole segment of society. They think Jesus is real, but he's just a low-level functionary. He's necessary like a gardener to keep stuff organized, but we're not really going to invite him to the dinner party. And then there was uh, John 21 when he's, he's just standing on the shore. They think he's a fishing coach. They think he's just a guy. Cast your net on the other side. What? That's a guy. Yeah, let's show him. We've been out here all night. Let's shut him up. And it wasn't until John bends down and tells Simon Peter, that's not a, that's not a ghost. That's, that's not a gardener. That's not just a guy. That's God. That's God. That is God Almighty. I'll give you another example of perception perspective. I got a couple of grandkids. You're going to see them in just a minute. My yard is kind of snaky. I live outside of Charlotte. It's kind of snaky. So I decided to hire a guy for $1,000 to clean up my whole thing so my kids could run back there. But then I thought, I'm 57 years old. I'm still a man's man. I'll do it myself. So I went down to Lowe's and got $800 worth of uh, equipment. I'm nothing if I'm not eco-friendly. So it was all battery power, chainsaw, a blower, and a weed eater. I asked the dude, I said, how long does this battery last? Oh, it lasts a long time, pal. That was a lie. It lasts about five minutes. But it'll, that chainsaw cut down a tree about that big around, so uh, I cut a bunch of chain, trees down, drug them to the road. Felt pretty good about it. I'm looking to stand on my deck, looking at my work. My work I, and I was pleased. And the neighbor, there's a neighbor. Hey, hey, Cecilia, come here, baby. Look, we got neighbors down there. Did you know we had neighbors? You can see down there. That neighbor came out, hands on the hip, talking to an adult, assuming her adult daughter. And my, I never met him. Perception, boom, that woman's mad at me. That lady right there, she's furious. I've cut down her rose bush or something. And so that was my immediate perception. Now, my perspective, my worldview was I got to make it right. 
I got to make it. I got to hire surveyors. I thought I knew where the property line was. Maybe there's a big dip. I, well, I got to get my wife to bake a pan of brownies and try to start building a bridge. She's an African-American family. I'm not a racist. How do you prove a negative? I don't know. We got to go build some bridges. I, and, I, and I couldn't even hardly sleep that night. Next morning, I was out on the deck having a time with the Lord. Here she come again. I'm like, okay, this is a good time to start. Building bridges. Lord, I'll be right back. As a matter of fact, won't you come with me, Lord? Won't you come on down here with me? Well, halfway down my yard, I said, hey, hey, you're the new neighbor, huh? She said, did you do this? I said, yes, ma'am, I did. You did this. Here. I did. I did that. This looks incredible. <laughs> it opens up everything. You can see everything. I said, I knew you felt that way in my, in my heart. I knew that. See, people ruin their lives with perceptions and perspectives that don't line up with perfection. So this is when the perfect came for me. So this is when the perfect came for me. So this guy takes me to his farm seven weeks. Four or, five, four or five weeks. Gives me that $10 bill. I take it and I sneak into the Smuggler's Inn disco. Young people, you can Google disco later on your own time. It was a place that was loud with flashing lights and loud music. And I, my buddy and I would sneak into the disco with a fake ID. Now he's a police captain in Columbus, Georgia. And we would dance. Then the next week, same routine. So then about after four, five, six, seven weeks of that, Mr. Reader says, hey, Joe, he drops me off with that $10 bill. He says, hey, Joe, you, you walk back up here tomorrow, I'll carry you to church. And I said, I was much more respectful now. I said, Mr. Reader, with respect, I'm not very religious, but thank you very much. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. And uh, he cheated. See, Ladies, men are not hard to understand. We're kind of like dogs in that respect. My dog is consistent. That dog will jump on me when I get home and lick me to death. But he'll also do it if I just forget my briefcase out in the truck, go out and get it, and come back in in 14 seconds, he'll do the same thing. Consistent. You just scratch a dog behind the ear, feed it good, let it run out in the yard. You got a dog figured out. Now, women are more like cats. Hey, you can pet me. I'm going under the couch. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Where'd you go? I don't know. But anyway, I digress. Mr. Reader cheated. I was hungry. He said, now, Joey, if you'll come up here tomorrow, we'll, uh, we'll carry you to church, and Patricia will make you homemade fried chicken, banana pudding so good you make want to slap somebody, butter beans and homemade cornbread and, and some two or three other things. And I, he just had me on the ropes, like rope-a-dope, man, like Muhammad Ali from Louisville. I mean, just I just, he had me. I said, okay, what kind of religion are you? I can be Baptist for banana pudding. I can be Catholic for cornbread. I mean, I'm hungry. So he took me to a church. There's a different kind of a church. He was a Baptist fellow. He said the Lord told him to start going to a Pentecostal church. Wasn't his flavor, wasn't his cup of tea, but it was, he was an assignment, and it was just weird enough for me to be interested. I'm like, there were people on the stage. They were wearing the same dress with the same collar on it, and they were all waving at me with their eyes closed. I walked in, and I'm like, hey, they're friendly people. I don't know none of them. Look at them. They're waving at me. 
doing weird stuff. I didn't care. I was getting chicken. So I did that little program for a few weeks. Farm, nightclub, church, farm, nightclub, church, farm, nightclub, church. I wish I could tell you that I came to know the Lord in a gorgeous facility like this. But it wasn't that way. I happened to be at the Smuggler's Inn. And the worship song was from Cool and the Gang and Rick James. <laughs> I was dancing with a merry lady. Probably like a typical white guy. <laughs> I don't know how I was dancing. <laughs> I don't know how I thought I was cool. But I heard a voice that night louder than a loudspeaker. All these many years later, it still gets me. I heard a voice that night, and it said to me, Joe, I love you. I got something better for you than this. And I stopped dancing, and I started crying. Now, some of you cry pretty, pretty tears. <laughs> Pastor Paul, that was a good sermon. I just love that so much. When I cry, you could sell tickets it's an event. <laughs> Shoulder shaking. Just, that's why I try not to cry a lot. And the Fort Benning guys, I couldn't hear them because the music so loud, but I could read their lips. He's drunk. That kid's drunk. I wasn't drunk. I hadn't, had, I hadn't had anything to drink. I wasn't going to take my $10 and waste it on that. I was an athlete still. I hadn't, I hadn't had anything to drink that night. I had heard from God. And that night, I walked out of darkness. I walked straight into the light. I've been walking in the light almost 40 years. And I've never had a regret in my whole life. Let's run through the last two or three pictures. This man, next picture, this is the man that changed my life. And every time I'd go through that part of Georgia, I'd go see him. In fact, I was honored about three or four years ago to preach his funeral back at that same farm. And I, and I stood there and I said, God, I'll never be able to say this with any integrity in the rest of my life at any funeral. Thank you for this man. Because of him introducing me to Jesus, I'm going to walk on streets of gold. His wife is still alive and I honor her every chance I get. Next photograph. See, God changes the picture. He changes a broken down dysfunctional man and changes pictures. Those are old pictures. Next photograph. I got four wonder. I got three wonderful kids and another one. I'm kidding. All four of them are incredible. Next photograph, if you would. My son just married the sheriff's daughter in our county. I'm like, do you know how many warrants I got out? I'm just kidding. I don't have any warrants out. My oldest son over there to the right is a pastor and an entrepreneur. My youngest son is an accountant. Our hope for retirement, hallelujah. My two daughters on the far left, well, not the far left, but those two girls in the dresses, they're Bible teachers and a history teacher, preacher, girl, daughter-in-law, grandson. And uh, that's my biological mother on the right, right here in Indiana, near Indianapolis. Before she passed, I was able to take three of my four kids and say, I love you. It's okay. In fact, preaching up here, in Indianapolis, one of those people that asked me the question, where was Jesus? She, she and her husband accompanied me, and she prayed the sinner's prayer with my mother and led her in a saving knowledge of Jesus. Next photograph. These are the grandbabies, and I can promise you one thing on this earth. Ain't nobody giving those kids away over my dead body. Ain't nobody giving those kids away. 
But I just want to end with this idea. My production manager and I, we're, we're, we're building an illustrated sermon for next year, but we don't have it here. So you're going to have to take three minutes and use your imagination as we close this service today, three or four minutes. Imagine if, if I had a prison, prison cells up here. They look really real, but they travel lightly. They're PVC pipe painted. And, and, they're, and in each of these prison cells, there's a cot and a bucket and a little tin pan. And there's several of them up here. And I've worked it out with Pastor Paul before the service. And I got some of you involved in it. And so at this time, I will call one of you ladies. And I'll say, get up here. You represent my mother. Now get in there. And I slam the door. But Don in the back, he's got the sound effects. It sounds just like a clanging cell. Bang! Stay in there. You, you tried to kill me. You wanted to abort me. You gave me away. Who gives away a little child like that? You're in the prison of my unforgiveness. You stay there and keep your mouth shut. And then I grab another one. And this, my, you represent my dad. You, you, you did not lead the family well. You kicked my mom out. How could you do that? Slam, Don, hits the sound effect. You stay in the prison of my unforgiveness. You, you, you wrecked my home. How dare you be a home wrecker? I'll tell you when you can speak and I can tell you when you can come out. You, you treated me badly. You fired me. How dare you fire me without cause? You lied about me. You, you spread lies about me. Stay in there. You're a gossip. You gossiped about me. Stay in there. And there's a bench right there. I put three of you on that bench. I'm deciding what to do with you. You didn't invite me to the wedding. You sent me a nasty email. And I can't even remember why I'm mad at you. You're just ugly. I'll figure it out later. And then I rule up here. I'm the warden. This is the prison of unforgiveness. Every one of them deserve to be here. Then I come to church, and Pastor Paul leads in a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And though it's special and religious and wonderful and holy, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day excellent. That's what I want. Our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Oh, yes. All of my debts, anger, malice, wrath, discord, strife, enmity, unbelief, prejudice, pride, hatefulness, all that. Wash it away. But then I see the train wreck coming. Forgive us our debt. And I have to cough <coughs> until that part's over. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Because I can't pray that other little phrase. You see, because I'm the warden of unforgiveness up here. How can I say, even as I forgive those who've trespassed against me, even as I forgive my debtors, because I have not? They're in there. See, Jesus said, Peter, who do you say that I am? Because once you figure that out, once you figure out his identity, then Jesus said, okay, that's right, Peter. Now here's your identity. You're the rock. Then he says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. And what if God gives us the keys to these cells? I had a little chemist in West Virginia, a little bouncy lady. She grew up in Georgia. 
and she, she's full of energy, about 80 years old. She said, Pastor Joe, I'm going to tell you something about forgiveness. I'm going to tell you something about forgiveness. See, forgiveness is real important. Of all the things the resurrected Jesus said, what did he say in John 20? He said, receive the Holy Spirit, remember? Peace be unto you, remember? He says, whomever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. She says, when you forgive somebody, you got to do it a certain way. you got to say, I forgive you, and I lay nothing to your charge. That means they don't owe you nothing. See, well, my story right there doesn't compare to some of yours. My story looks like Mr. Rogers compared to some of yours. And you're like, you do not know what he did to me. He belongs there. But here's the problem. If I'm the warden up here of all this junk that happened to me, I got to keep maintaining it. I got to keep feeding it. I got to keep dumping the bucket. I got to keep getting them in the yard for an hour of exercise a day. It is work. Unforgiveness is like eating rat poison, expecting a rat to die. It don't work. So what if one day I say, if you've given me the key, and this is important for my future, then mom, you gotta you gotta come on out. You just got you just got pardoned by me. But let me explain. Let me, you don't owe me an explanation. That's why the Bible says, "Forgive them, for they are ignorant. They do not know what they do. They ought to know what they did to me." Sometimes they have no clue the depth of the scar. You don't owe me an explanation. You're free, Dad. You're free. Let me give you some money. You don't owe me any money. Go, go, go. Hey, let, get on out of here. Let, let, let me let me give you an apology. You don't owe me an apology. You're free. You're free. You're free. You're free. You're free. You're still ugly, but. You're free. Everybody's free. And then I'm in, the, I'm in these empty cells. And guess who really is the one who's free? It's me. I'm the one who's free. Now, you can be free too. I'll finish with this if the musicians would come or whatever the protocol here is. Whatever you normally do. So I gave my heart to the Lord. I only have one real Christian in my family that I know of. I say to her, Aunt Lois, it's about 1.30 in the morning. I said, Aunt Lois, the rest of them started coming to the Lord. But at this point, I, I got a problem. She said, Joey, what's your problem? Aunt Lois, I hate that lady that lives in my house. You know what she said to me? She says, I do too. Well, that don't help me at all. I said, hey, Lois, I don't think we're supposed to hate her. She said, Joey, you're right. We're not. I don't know how not to. She said, why don't we pray? We held hands. And I'm not trying to build a denomination or a doctrine on this, what I'm about to tell you. Something happened to me that has never happened before, and it has never happened since. We prayed and asked God to get that junk out of our heart and release that lady from the prison of our unforgiveness and when we were done, I looked at her wide-eyed. She's looking at me wide-eyed. I said, Aunt Lois, did you put your finger in an electrical socket? I felt energy come, like an electrical current coming in between us that was weird. And I still think maybe she did something she didn't tell me about. She said, I felt it too, Joey. 
I don't know what that meant, but I do know this. I wouldn't be holding this if I hadn't done that that night. Now, you, you can go ahead and keep all that stuff up there and maintain it. But there's something on the other side of you getting rid of that. See, if you want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, you've got to understand him in the fellowship of his suffering. He was despised. Somebody hate you. He was rejected by men. Some spouse walk out on you and leave you. People hid from him. Somebody's starting lies about you. He was rejected in the deepest way you can be rejected. But if you're going to go through that, you might as well know the power of the resurrection.